because when you talk about dis- destabilizing um, the police department, when you defund them, you take away positions. So when you don't have positions, you don't have people. When you don't have people, you have calls in areas that are not being answered or being answered um, with extended time where you they're getting on scene which means that suspects are getting away people are getting away with crimes victims die welcome to indie thinker with reed uberman you're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture causes politics and faith Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman. I'm super excited to have a friend in the house today, Evie West. And uh, I'm, I like to be able to have these conversations with friends when I possibly can, just because I feel like it flows better, organic conversation. And I know a lot of your backstory. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, good. I hope so, because it is quite an honor. Not only were you in my wedding, but also now you're, I, I would basically say your life is complete because now you've been on my show. Um, okay. I have nothing more to check off. No you more. You can die when bucket. you leave here. No. <laughs> let me give people a little bit of background of who you are, uh, just so that I can let them know why I wanted to have you on today. Um, so I think your life, uh, in terms of kind of what's going on in our world today, runs in so many interesting streams. Uh, now, you just recently uh, started doing some stuff in the academy, but uh, predominantly you, you there's two spaces perhaps that I think are so really important and really kind of on the tip of everyone's tongue, everyone's tongue it seems like. Uh, so the first one is this, is that you're a police officer. You're a sergeant with the police department um, locally here. And then you're also somebody who has just an absolutely heroic, wonderful story of... Uh, adoption, pro-life story, I don't know how you'd encapsulate it, but um, we'll jump into a little bit of your, your pro-life experience, why you're pro-life, and also to uh, maybe some kind of the nuance of some things that are going on today and some things that I think people maybe forget or need to hear from somebody who's experienced what you've experienced in your pro-life story that will help people kind of wrestle with like dogma aside, kind of actually really dig into the reality of of what's taking place because I feel like there's so much left and right. Um, there's so much talking, uh, maybe talking heads, but even talking pieces, where uh, I think sometimes we can miss stuff in the process. But let's roll the tape back and let's talk talk about um, your uh, job as a police officer. So I think. I heard this a long, long time ago, but I don't even remember. So just tell us why you became a police officer in the first place. The funny thing is I didn't want to. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't my life's ambition. Yeah. And um, making a super long story short, you know, um, and part of my testimony too is, is my parents actually making me move to Cleveland, Tennessee in 1996 to get away from gangs and all the, the bad things that I had kind of involved myself in. And so when I attended Lee college, which turned into the university, uh, I was studying, I was an intercultural studies major and I was my, my heart's mission, objective passion was to, it has always been to help people. I mm-hmm. love people. And so I wanted, I felt called at a young age to minister to Hispanics. And so, um, I wanted to live, I thought that I was going to live either in South or Central America or Mexico and, um, that I would be a missionary there. Uh, however, when I graduated from school, um, I had college loans and at the time, you know, I, I remember, yeah, I remember getting that paper in the mail and looking at it and just crying and right. saying, oh, by 2036, you'll be, you'll have paid off your school loans. And I, I just thought, 
how can I go and serve in a, in a country and, um, and pay, pay these loans? I can't do it. And so it was just crazy because the last uh, year and a half, the previous year and a half, I had um, shared my testimony with a local high school and the teacher was a sergeant at the police department. And so one day he asked me, hey, are you interested in a job? And to me, I thought, man, how glorious would it be to like work at a police department where actual police officers would come by my desk and maybe ask something from me? Like, do you have a pen or, you know, or can you have extra paper or I need this for my job? Um, But in reality, he saw potential in me to be a police officer. And so when I fill out the application and I said, right here where it says position applied for, what do you want me to put? He said, police officer. Hmm. And I didn't see that in myself. I was like, man, I've made so many bad decisions growing up and did so many bad things, things that I hurt a lot of people. And um, things that I'm not proud of. And how could I be in this position of authority that's the complete opposite of what I, I was? You know, I was a lawbreaker. Now I'm a law enforcement enforcer. And um, and so how it's so on the opposite ends of the spectrum, you know. So when um, the chief brought me in his office and said, you know, last time I'm going to give you one chance. Uh, that was, what, 22 years ago. Wow. And, um, and I have loved this this is ministry this is the mission field mm-hmm. in my mind i was like oh i'm going to be in this exotic place but in reality i'm in cleveland tennessee but i'm still doing the work that god's called me called let's, me to do at a young age let's talk about that for a minute because i think some people especially after 2020 have a misperception of what police work is now uh of course maybe it's different in some ways because it's such a dynamic job for everybody but i think there is this general kind of total misunderstanding of what police work actually is and what you guys actually do on a regular basis. In fact, um, somebody told me, and again, this could just be their personal experience of kind of the way that they were a police officer, but they told me that the vast majority of the work that they saw themselves doing and the vast majority of the good that they saw themselves doing had nothing to do with uh, actually arresting people, but it had to do with having people in the back of their car as they were about to drive to take them to the police station to to book them. And having those conversations with those people in the back seat, which you never get, especially from the news media, but you just never get from from any institution in our society of what what's taking place between that officer and that person in the backseat of the car. And and that officer told me that he had some of the most powerful and he felt life-changing conversations with people as they were talking to somebody that, that they had just arrested. So um, mission field, when you say that, I really think that's important for, for people to hear because they don't, maybe if they don't think for themselves, they think, well, police work is just a bunch of dirty cops who uh, like to uh, brutalize African-Americans. But, um, why is it a mission field for you? Um, because you're, you're able to serve people. Uh, I, I actually spoke on our local radio station and talked, um, on, for nine 11 and, you know, they're talking about first responders and, and, you know, first responders really go up and down. Well, when I, when I, when I say first responders, specifically speaking law enforcement, cause firemen somehow always become heroes <laughs> and they stay in that place, but police are heroes one day and they are villains the next. Yeah. And it, it, and it really depends on what's going on in the news. And so, um, so it's, we work really hard, you know, at that perception. And so, um, what I said was the interesting thing is, is that on nine 11, if you watch those videos and you see people running in yeah. horror away from the Twin Towers, who do you see going the opposite direction? Yeah. Firemen, policemen, EMS. Um, and and you're, these guys are thinking, I may die. Mm-hmm. I may die, but I'm willing to risk my life for whoever's in that building. I'm, I'm will- If I can save just one, just one. And so um, 
while we are looked at villains, there is um, a part of this is not just a job. You know, you say, oh, hey, McDonald's is hiring $15 an hour plus a $1,000 sign-on bonus. Somebody needs a job, you go there, get it. This takes, the application process takes time, the background takes time, everything about the psychological, the medical, yep. and then you finally make it to that spot. And then you have to go to the academy and it's away from your family for 12 weeks. And then you have to go through the FTO program and then you get released and then you're scared to death. You're on your first call going, am I make the right decision? Because this is how quick it takes to make a decision, a life yeah. and death decision, you know? And so with us, um, the mission field is serving people. Hey, I want to be here and I'm willing to risk my life. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your lifestyle is. I don't care what your choices are. I'm going to risk my life. Speaking of risking your life, uh, it was probably three weeks ago when I heard on the radio, um, uh, there was a a three-year-old that had stopped breathing. So they sent our officers there Mm -hmm. and you listen to that call thinking, is it child abuse? You know, what, what is, why is that child not breathing? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm listening and, and, um, I, I heard them giving the information, the child's not breathing and all this. And, and so as soon as the officers went 1097, which means they're, they're there on the scene, um, they said, and use, uh, respiratory precautions because the entire family has COVID and the child has COVID. So, you can't be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have no idea. Yeah. I had no, no, I'm not going to that house. But that's that's a threat right yeah. now to our officers. That officer's and so, getting COVID. Yes. Yeah, so you go in that house and you're expected to por- perform CPR on that child if that child's not breathing. Yeah. And then you get off shift and you go home and you shower and you kiss your wife <laughs> and you hug your children. And so what? You, you can't say, no, I'm not going in there because someone's shooting. I can't go in there because someone has COVID. They are answering these calls where people are dying. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea what you're you're stepping into. Uh, if you watch a California deputy um, searching a car and somehow get breathe in fentanyl and overdoses like that. Thank, thankfully, his field training officer got Narcan and and pumped that in his nose. So this and, actually happened. Yeah, this happened. Yeah. And so these are all dangers that happen all the time. Yeah. So when you say, how is this mission field? Um, we do. And I have, I know of a lot of police officers that do things that people don't know about. They don't want to be like, hey, everyone, look at me. Hey, I'm going to take my camera. I'm going to take my phone and I'm going to feed a homeless person right now. <laughs> yeah. Smile, smile. You know, they don't do that. Right. It's just part of everyday life. And um and so, yeah, it's always serving. It's mm-hmm. always serving people. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that, like, it's not the main reason I want to have you on by any stretch, but it is something that I've, I've always thought about is that, like, when there are unfortunate and even misguided and misjudgments on the half of, behalf of the police officer and there's an officer-involved shooting um, and it maybe shouldn't have happened, um, I think it's every single police officer that I've spoken to, I know lots of great police officers, though, <laughs> every single one of them said the George Floyd thing should have never happened um, and that it was obviously a bad cop that was uh, in the pro- responsible for doing those kind of things. But... Um, I, every single one of the police officers that I've spoken to have all um, have all these stories that I think contradict what we hear in the mainstream, but also think that it's important to say this. 
the vast majority of um, what we hear comes from the mainstream news media, but that's not necessarily what people think necessarily about cops. That's just what you're hearing from the media. And of course, everybody knows those guys live for ratings. That's what they're trying to do. That's what they're that's what they're after. Because I think it was something like even after all of this stuff in 2020, uh, statistics said something like um, in predominantly black neighborhoods, 70 percent of the people wanted just as much or more police presence in their neighborhoods, uh, even after all this stuff was was uh, uh, had taken place in all this rhetoric. Now, I have my own beliefs as to how much of this had to do with the fact that this was an election year and Black Lives Matter seems to be um, something that could easily be used as a tool for election uh, opportunities, more so than almost some of the other things that we were hearing. But, um, but, the, but the point is, is, I'm curious from your perspective how you felt after, in the aftermath of all this stuff. Did it change, did it really change people's perspective of policing um, or did you find that there were people who just because they people genuinely know, I think, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but people genuinely know that police officers are out there risking their lives every single day and are doing a good service. So, like, just for instance, I found myself thanking a cop about a month ago for giving me a ticket, uh, which I should have been irate about, right, and got my phone out, but uh, thanking him because I just realized how much of a thankless job that you guys have. It gave me a perspective. I guess 2020 gave me a perspective of what you guys deal with on a regular basis. It gave us kind of like a view inside uh, police work. And I'm just curious, do you feel like 2020, and I know this is a generality and it may just be your opinion, do you feel like 2020 gave people that ultimately it will be good for cops, or do you feel like it was detrimental to, to cops and what they're they're trying to do in the long run? I guess it just depends on the agenda yeah. of, of the person. And, and the reason I say that is because uh, right now we are um, living under leadership and administration who does not support law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very obvious. Yeah. And, and so because of that, that negative attitude and vibe kind of bleeds into society. And um, I've noticed uh, that um, when when the George Floyd thing happened, and then you can go back to any other of the other shootings that have happened of unarmed um, uh, people, yep. um, because it's not just black black people, it's white people, it's Hispanics that, that get, um, that have been shot. Uh, I always say wherever I go, I, I don't want to make a national problem a community issue or a national issue a community problem. And what that means is, is that where I live in Cleveland, Tennessee, and where we live in Tennessee in general, um, we we have a very supportive community. And a, a, a majority of that, of our community, does support law enforcement. And we're very grateful because people will come up and, and talk to us and tell us thank you and pay for our meals and, and that kind of stuff. And... Um, but when this happened, it's like we took a nosedive. Yeah. And um, then we are really being careful and second guessing, you know, do I really want to get out with this person? Should I really stop this person? Should I arrest this person for this? Um, and, or just kind of let it go, even though we do have rights to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's a bad thing. Uh, you have a lot of police officers that have left the profession um, because there's so much scrutiny that we have to go through every single day. People are watching us. People are putting phones in our faces. Um, when that happened in Minnesota, we had a Black Lives Matter protest in Cleveland, Tennessee, and they came to the Cleveland Police Department, and they demanded 
that we had uh, laws or policies in place that would prevent us from these kind of things, especially that happened there, the neck, the, sitting on the guy's neck and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, which we do. Yeah. But nobody bothered to come to us in a manner that would just be like have a discussion and say, hey, I'm concerned about our community and what happened in Minnesota. I don't want that happening here. Yeah. So as a as a minority leader, whether you're black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, can you um, assure me or can you show me where um, you have policies that would prevent um, that being okay? Yep. And we'd be like, absolutely. Hey, we're Kalia accredited and we're going to show you what our policies say. Now, whether or not somebody does that or abides by that, that's on their own. It's, it's per, part of their own personal individual um, decision, but they have consequences to face for that. Mm-hmm. And that could be, that could be prison uh, and loss of job and loss of income and loss of benefits and all this. And so um, it kind of goes up and down. Um, we, that day that the Black Lives Matters uh, protesters came to the police department, they looked at me with disgust and hate saying F the police, mm-hmm. no justice, no, no peace, no racist police. And I, I thought it was so interesting because I looked at those people that were chanting that. And I thought to myself, you don't know anything about me. Mm-hmm. You know nothing about me. You don't know I'm from California. You don't know that I grew up um, with more uh, Hispanics than I did white people. You don't know that I um, was bullied and jumped and everything else because of my skin color, because mm-hmm. of me being white um, by Hispanics. You don't know that um, that I would sit down at our table in my live in my dining room and sit next to a woman from Africa and a man from Fiji and a woman from this place and that place because my mom met all these people and wanted to bring them in and tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. And so you don't know that I've been from different to different countries and visited different people and have families and, and relationships with different people. So you're going to look at me and say that I'm racist mm-hmm. just based on what this man in Minnesota did yeah, or Minneapolis, crazy. Minneapolis did. And, and you're going to look at me and judge me for that. Yeah, I don't do that to you. You know, and so I think it's um, it's ignorant to just classify everybody as a police officer, as a racist and a somebody who is, um, like you said, a villain. Uh, it's, it's not good. So let's use brains in this situation and let's say, hey, um, if there's an issue, let's address this issue in a in a way that would be profitable and progressive instead of making. Um, making, um, let me see, how do you say this? Instead of really just creating problems and more chaos and more division and more violence. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, the, I think that's what a lot of people love is the division and the violence. And yeah. that, that to me, it hurts me um, as a Christian, but as a person. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say something to you. And because here's the thing, because we can broaden this out to a cultural kind of phenomenon is why are we and maybe it's always been like this so just to be fair why are we more interested in fighting than we are discussing why is it so hard to have discussions especially with people that disagree with you why is it seeming like there is i spent a lot of time wondering why there is this kind of ideological possession it seems of people especially on the left but to be fair also on the right where people just get possessed by an idea and it doesn't even have to be based upon rationality and reason, and and then they just they just follow that thing. And um, so I think you could certainly talk about this from a broader perspective. But I also so I think that there's something going on culturally. I guess to say all that, but I also think 
I'm going to give you my thoughts. Um, I wonder if that that feeling of division and that feeling of chaos and that feeling of um, maybe those are enough expletives or not expletives, but enough um, adjectives. Maybe that's the point. That's what I keep on coming back to, and 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 again, I'm trying to broaden this out beyond Black Lives Matter or sure. uh, the issue with George Floyd and yeah. policing writ large in America, but also things culturally that are going on. Because I spent a lot of time researching cultural Marxism and what it has done in the past um, and what it seems to be doing presently. And one of their goals is to unnerve the system. That's why you hear people talking about systemic racism um, so much. And then you hear so many people not even able to give you like an idea of like what that actually even is um, or where it exists. And then if you talk to people, say they pinpoint, okay, this happens with policing or whatever, then having that conversation about, well, what's the the way to do that? Defund the police. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, really? That's the way we're going to do this? Um, it just seems totally based, like totally not in reality. But I, but so it brings me back to this conclusion. I think that's the goal. I think it is to destroy systems in America and to try to create a general sense of chaos. I think the defund the police thing is to destabilize a backbone institution in society. Um, and I know this is getting pretty deep here, but um, but I just keep on wondering about that writ large in society because I'm I'm concerned with the church. Uh, as an institution and what's going on culturally. I'm concerned with the media as an institution. Like, we don't even know what it means to have the vast majority of our media in the pocket of one political party and what happens when that system of information is really broken down. Like, what does that do to us as a people? And maybe we're seeing it. But with all of this institutional kind of, like, destabilization, like, where is that coming from? And I can't help but wonder if there's an agenda behind that just to simply destabilize, just to destroy. Now, I don't think everybody is 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 about that. But, but I do think that there are people who don't readily think for themselves who will jump on board with the people who are about that. And then they'll jump onto emotional talking points and and just follow those emotional things from an emotional level, but not really think for themselves about what's really, really going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And you're right, because when you talk about dis- destabilizing um, the police department, when you defund them, you take away positions. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have positions, you don't have people. When you don't have people, you have calls in areas that are not being answered or being answered um, with an extended time where you they're getting on scene which means that suspects are getting away people are getting away with crimes victims die um so you so it's it is it is you're right that's exactly i think that's that's probably one of the best explanations that i've heard well i, I don't know but thank you uh <laughs> i don't know if it is but it, but i think that that it's 100 percent based in in factual history that the communist um uh, movement, if you want to call it that, and certainly Marxism was built upon an idea, and Marx said this, that if communism is going to thrive, that it, it relies upon the destabilization of all existing conditions, the removal of all existing conditions. One of those existing conditions, by the way, for communism to move into a country that's a democratic republic like ours would have to be that they would have to get rid of some of the things that would keep this revolution from taking place? And what are one of those things that would keep a revolution from taking place that would create order? 
Well, of course, it's the police department. So if you defund the police department and you destabilize the police department, you keep them from doing their job, then they cannot create the order that would keep a revolution from taking place. Now, that may be looking afar off, but I've, I've thought a lot about that because just quite frankly, defund the police makes no rational sense whatsoever. It's the silliest thing on the planet, except insofar as you might say, let's but this would even take more funding. Let's fund the police department, but let's fund it in different ways that can try to help with mental health crises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Crises. Um, I've heard a bunch of different police officers say, hey, we could we could benefit from that because the vast majority of a lot of the majority of the calls we get are people who are dealing with mental health sure. issues. Yeah. Um, so uh, let so le- leaving that <laughs> as big as it is, um, let's talk about another thing that's really, really kind of. I think along with kind of the cultural agenda that we're seeing is, but certainly something that we're talking a lot about regardless is because uh, you've got the Texas heartbeat bill um, and then you've got other uh, states that look like they may jump on board with that kind of stuff. Um, and then we have a very pro-abortion kind of administration right now. Uh, and I have, along with that, and this is a, something I think that you and I both will kind of sympathize with because we're both Christians. Along with that, I've seen uh, a lot of shift taking place in the church uh, in in terms of the pro-life commitment. So I see more and more, and I'm curious if you've seen it too, I see more and more and more Christians coming out who are pro-abortion. Are you seeing no, that no, too? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, well, you you have a Catholic who, before he got elected, was saying oh. he's pro-life, and now he's Da-da. saying, Shh, yeah, Catholic. now he's saying, uh, I'm pro-choice. A woman should be able to choose what yeah. she wants to do with her body. Yeah. What, what about in terms of like uh, like social circles or people that you um, talk to about this issue? Um, well, I will I will be honest um, over through this election. I have been really disappointed in people that I respected as Christians that I just I cannot believe that um, that they are taking the stance that they are. They yeah. are. And, and yeah, it is. I mean, you're voting for somebody who's pro-choice. Um, and, uh, you know, how can you, how can you be a Christian and do that? That's, that's my question. And, and there's a lot of other areas and factors, things that we can talk about. Um, but just, just staying in with that abortion, um, that the fact of abortion, I just, I, I've been very disappointed. Hmm. Yeah, I think I have too. It's just, and maybe not disappointed. I was just been kind of surprised. Saddened. Yeah. Saddened, I think, would be a good word. So I, I keep on wondering about why that's happening, too. Um, it's also happening, just to make sure we, I stick my foot in a bunch of different uh, uh, crocodile ponds. Uh, I'm also seeing the rise of, like, uh, very outspoken LGBTQIA mm-hmm. plus Christians, like rainbow flags, like, I'm a Christian and I'm blah, 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 blah. So I, I keep on wondering about where that's coming from. Um, so... Without digging too much into that, I will throw that to the side and maybe get back to that because I want you to answer the Christian who would say some of the things that we hear so very often coming from people who are pro-abortion advocates. Um, But before I do that, I want to get into your story because I think that this gives you, I think it gives you a sense of credibility, but it also gives you a sense of um, personal experience. So it just goes beyond the dogmatism of just being pro-life uh, and just saying, you know, uh, my life or my body, my choice, right? And so either left or right, it, there's there's something that's runs deeper here, and that's a personal experience where you actually were pro-abortion because you were no, seeking one. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, I was. Um, 
so I was looking for a quick solution to mm. a problem. Yeah. I mean, I knew abortion. That's a good, I knew that's abortion a good was wrong. I yeah. knew abortion was wrong. And I was willing to, um, to drop my convictions because I needed a quick solution to my problem. Yeah. And so I hate, I there's mean, probably a lot of people out there in that same boat. Well, I, I want to make sure that we be very clear about that because there might be women who sit here and say, Oh no, abortion's wrong. Like I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. But when it comes down to it and you're in that position, you're like, I know it's wrong, but this is, I, I have to do this. Like, and by the I way, can't to let, have this baby. To let people know, how old were you when you first got pregnant? Uh, 16 okay. when I first got pregnant. And then the second time was 19 years old. Okay. And that's um, actually when my, my parents actually sent me to Cleveland. And um, I had just rededicated my life to Jesus Christ. Everything was was good. Um, everything was, there was change in my life and it was good. And then I woke up one morning and, and vomited and I knew. Like I'm pregnant. Hmm. So I freaked out and I get a, a phone book and I looked under abortion um, A. Now in California, there's abortion clinics like everywhere. Yeah. So I had no idea that I was in the Bible Belt. <laughs> yeah. Not only am I in the Bible Belt, I'm in the buckle yeah. of the Bible Belt. Those and, who don't know Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I saw A, abortion, um, it said New Hope Pregnancy Crisis Center. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then it said um, post-abortion counseling. I had no idea what I, I thought. Oh, okay. So once you have an abortion, they give you counseling or something like that. Cause then, you know, I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I, w- I, I made an appointment and I went in there and they, they, um, put me in a room and, and had me do a urine test and then did confirm that I was pregnant. And so, um, I, I saw a Bible there and I asked the lady, I said, is this a Christian place? And she said, well, we're a, we're a pregnancy center who help women in crisis pregnancies. And I said, well, is this a Christian place? And she said, yeah, we love Jesus here. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I said, I basically thought this was going to be, I mean, Reed, when I went there, I didn't even have money. Mm-hmm. I was broke. What I was going to do was trick them. I was going to go in there and have the surgery or drink the smoothie or whatever. I had no idea what an abortion was. Right. I was going to take the pill or whatever. And then I would go out and say, hey, I don't have any money, but I promise you I'll pay. I'll make payments on this. Like mm. I had no idea how this was going to work. I mean, I was so naive in this. And desperate. And I was desperate. I was so desperate. And so... Um, so when she told me about that and, and she said, let me, let's help you. I'm going to help you through this. I told her, look here, I'm 19 years old. I have a two year old son. I said, um, I just moved here from California. I'm 2000 miles away. My parents aren't here. I'm a student at Lee. Like every single thing that I was involved in pointed to, you cannot have a baby. Mm -hmm. I have no money. I have no job. I have no car. Like I can't have a baby. I'm taking my two year old son to school with me every day. And then walking home with him at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was even a time where I didn't have food. I didn't have any food to eat. How was I going to feed a baby when I, w- I myself went hungry? Yeah. Um, and so, so it's a quick thinking of Jackie Leggett, who put on a video and educated me on what abortion was, a DNC, a partial birth abortion. And when I looked at, and I, when I watched the, I mean, the horror just filled me. Mm. I just, I got sick to my stomach. I saw that and I thought, there's no way. And I've shared my testimony 150 times. And um, pregnancy centers across the nation say, we don't show that video. It's so graphic. And I'm like, you know what? God knows me. And he's like, nothing else is going to work with this chick except this video. Yeah. See, I think that's important too. So just to pause real quick in the story, because I think there are some Christians, especially now, I mean, we're talking pro-choice Christians here. And and I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Um, but there's some people who would say, well, that's a dirty trick to do that to a, to a woman. Well, I mean, isn't it just showing them the truth? Isn't it helping it's them true. grasp the reality of what it is? And 
I, I, so much of this, and maybe we don't want to get into this because I know that I think so much of this at the end of the day comes down to, if you're a pro-choice, a, a pro-abortion Christian, so much of this, or if you're just pro-abortion, period, so much of this comes back to the point of you don't understand that that's, a, you, or you don't believe, or you don't really think that that's a baby in your womb. Because if you did, you would not be thinking the way that you're thinking. It's a, it's a selfish choice. It's a selfish choice um, to a quick solution. Um, but in the end, it's, it may be a solution to your problem at that moment, but all it does is create more problems. Mm-hmm. Because you have women who suffer through depression, um, anxiety, uh, PTSD, who have gone through abortions. And when I speak, you know, women come up to me and say, there's, there's been women who have, have kept this secret for years. Mm-hmm. And um, I was in New York and this woman come up to me and she said, after I spoke and she said, I've had seven abortions and not even my husband knows that. Wow. And here's the, the, the lie of the enemy says, hey, there's no way you can walk in freedom after you've done this horrible thing. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, he's like, what's the big deal? It's your body, your choice. Yeah. That's what the enemy says to us. It is our body. But there is a living being There's inside of body. us, yes, yeah. that is inside of us that we have the privilege of birthing and raising. And if we can't do that, we have the privilege of placing him or her with a family who will love that child mm-hmm. and and who will raise that child. And you know, and so, um, which is the route that I went with with adoption. Um, but it is it is absolutely one hundred percent murder. Yeah, and they are innocent human beings and we have people that just go by the wayside just like ah whatever it's not yeah. a big deal they're not really alive well i don't know what they're saying are they really alive um we i can't take care of this kid this is not what i wanted i mean you can make every excuse in the book but they are created by god mm-hmm. formed formed and um and so I just, I think that um, we, we have a voice and we have to use our voice to speak for those that, that, that can't speak for themselves. Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk real quick because you, uh, you almost got close to talking about this because this is something I think is important too because, um, again, the vast majority of my audience is going to be Christian, um, but uh, this is for people writ large just on the other side of the movement. Here's what I would want you to consider is that when you say that this is about women's health or this is about, you know, women with what you – I think you so beautifully – your story beautifully illustrates this idea of, like, making sure that you don't have to – take care of a child if you're not ready. Well, like, my God, you were not ready to mm-hmm. uh, to have a second child, but there is options. So we'll get into the adoption thing too. But I think that's beautiful of your story. But also too, I'm curious if you've you got close to talking about women who have had abortions. And when we say my body, my choice, and when we say shout your abortion, and when we say things like this is about women's health and you're a man, you don't have the right to tell a woman what to do with their body. Um, we're for. And and then and then the Christian steps in and says those things, um, and then tries to do it. God help me from a position of compassion, um, and I'm just like compassion for the baby, anybody, but also too compassion for the mother, because have you experienced? And I'm just curious. I'm throwing this out here because you could say no, um, so this is a a risky question. Have you experienced women who have have had abortions, and then there is desperate collateral damage based upon the what you just said because the lie at the beginning is just do it it's just an abortion and then the lie afterwards is can you believe that you had that abortion um and have you experienced women who had really lasting emotional effects after they have had an abortion because i know you travel in a bunch of different circles of 
not only in the police force, but also in the pro-life community. And so I can't, can't help but imagine that you have had women with those stories about what it's done to them afterwards. Yeah, I, I know personally a, a woman who has um, who has decided to have an abortion and has walked in freedom because they they understand what Jesus did. Yeah. And I personally know a woman who has had an abortion and 40 years later is still suffering, is still suffering that choice. Mm-hmm. Now, it is not God's will for us to continue to walk in bondage right. once we make that choice. Yeah, it grieves his heart so bad. It grieves his heart so bad when we make that decision because he has plans and purposes for those children, right? And we just discard them like they're just a piece of trash, just throw it in the garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, but for women, you know, that, that, that do go through with that, there's forgiveness that is so real. And he does not want them to walk um, in in bondage. He does not want them to walk um, where they're con- continuously just being um, not being able to be free from that from yeah. that decision. Um, and so that's the thing, you know. I think that we just just throw it out there and say, well, this is just a quick solution to a problem. But in reality, it's long term. It's long lasting. And and um, the first time I shared my story, I was so nervous about it, but it came out in the paper. And uh, about two weeks after it, ca- it came out, I received a typed note, a typed letter in the mail at the police department. Yeah. It had my name on it. It was typed. There was no, no writing on it at all, no return address. So I opened it up, and it was a typed letter from a woman that said, um, 40-something years ago, I, or maybe a little bit, yeah, 40 or 50 years ago, I, I, dis- I, I contemplated abortion. And um, uh, situations happened and changed and all that. And so I went ahead and I had my daughter. And she said, no one knows about this. And she said, but when I look at my daughter and my granddaughter, I thank the Lord that I chose life for them. Mm -hmm. But I thought to myself, wow, what a great testimony. But the fact that you are writing, you're typing this out and sending it, I mean, you've never told anybody, and she said this in the letter, I've never told anybody, that she only contemplated Hmm. abortion. Um, She only contemplated it, but she still feels the the guilt of that when she looks at, I mean, she does, but she thinks, I could have aborted them. But so it means that the enemy wants us to to keep us bound and in a place where we can't get out or we say i can't believe you did that i can't believe you even thought about that mm-hmm. shame on you and then you stay in this place full of shame full of regret full of guilt and you can't be free even though you had a savior who was beaten and nailed to a cross and did that for you yeah um for you to be free every single place i go and share my testimony at least 3 women come up to me and say, nobody knows this, but 20 years ago, I had three abortions. I've never told anybody. And I pray with them. And I'm like, okay, so how are you feeling? I I just can't, I cannot be released from it. I can't do it. I cry. I mean, they cry. And and I'm like, you've got to walk in freedom. Mm -hmm. You've got to walk in freedom. Um, And, you know, unless they're being discipled, I, I don't know. I mean, our churches, are we failing in that where we're like, being this entity where they say, Hey, no matter what you've done, come to us and we will, we will nurse you back to health. We will help you walk through this. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, question because I've, I thought about this too, because 
This is where I'll be fair and say people on the left side of the aisle, which typically, maybe that's a false characterization, but false left side of the aisle who typically lean pro-abortion, um, might have a little bit of a point in the way in which we approach this subject. Uh, however, I also think that that's a little bit of a misnomer. I think those very many in that camp are not going to be satisfied until we just say, you have the right to do what you want to. Um, and I don't know that Christians are as bad as people want to stereotype them as being judgmental and all that stuff. It's like uh, the vast majority of people really don't have any judgmental experiences with Christians. They just think that they're supposed to say that Christians are judgmental. But anyway, um, but I, but there are some who, who, who do perhaps have a point when they say, uh, when they talk about the way in which the church has maybe addressed this in the in the past um, or the way in which we talk about these things. But I don't know. I guess I struggle with this a lot because this is what I think, but you tell me what you think. Um, I'm curious how you think we deal with it in the church. I, uh, I think we're castigated, um, especially by people on the left, as being judgmental and harsh about this issue. I think coming from the camp where they're pointing their fingers at us, I'm like, I don't, I don't get what you're talking about because we talk about it maybe once a year in the vast majority of churches, if you talk about it at all. Um, and so we say we're pro-life and we vote pro-life, but the fact is, is the vast majority of Christians aren't standing in front of abortion clinics with signs. They're not doing anything other than voting at the ballot box. They're not putting their pro-life stance on social media, um, or they're not outspoken, I guess, because it didn't, like, whatever, social media, but they're not outspoken pro-life advocates. They're just, they just do that because it's a, a box that they feel like they have to check to be on the Christian right. They're uh, not attending um, pregnancy centers, local pregnancy center fundraising banquets either. Yeah, definitely so, not pro- giving money out yeah, to, they're giving yeah. money to their church, and hopefully, yeah. like, the church maybe does something. Yeah. Um, but, uh but but when I look at it from our camps, I'm curious what you think from our side. Um, I don't see that we do, and I and this is coming from a pastor of 18 years, that we are hypothetically pro-life. I think it's the same um, that we have been in the past, the same way about sex um, and all these other issues, homosexuality. Um, we don't want to address these things because um, they're volatile. Yes. And so growing up, you know, we never were talked to about sex. I, I thought that you couldn't have sex unless you're married. It's, but but then I experimented and at 16. I'm like, well. wait, well, this wasn't supposed to happen. But um, so I think that we just kind of leave it under the rug. Uh, I go and I don't know, I think you know this, but I, I speak um, professionally and I go and across the nation and I help pregnancy centers um, raise money. And so I went to one specific one. And so um, I usually ask them, hey, how much do you want to raise tonight? And so some people say, well, tonight we need to raise $650,000. And I'm like, okay, how many people do you have coming? And is this possible? To- oh, yeah, yeah, it's a goal. I'm like, we've raised. I'm like, okay, good. And then there's been some that I've gone and said, okay, what are you looking to raise tonight? And um, the lady said, we would love to raise $4,000. Mm-hmm. And I said, 4000 because people have said 30000 100000 80000 600000 yeah. and I've never gotten 4000 I said four, you're trying to raise $4000 yeah. we'd love to raise $4000 and I said how many people will be here tonight and she said almost 300 my god and I was thinking 
is this a joke? She's like, no, the most we've ever gotten was about 2,800. And I said, okay, how do you have so many people come and they don't give? And she said, because here it's status coming to this, but nobody wants to give. And I was so, I could not believe it. So I was speaking and usually I do the ask at the very end saying, Hey, you know, tonight I I would like you to, you know, think about what you can give tonight and blah, blah, blah. But I felt very strongly that I was supposed to get a basket and walk to each table and have people (laughs) give and put money in the basket, which I'm sure made them very uncomfortable. But I told them, I said, I feel like I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to get a basket and I'm going to come to your table. So I'm going to give you five minutes to think about what you can give tonight. And so... So I did. And I walked around to each table. And so they collected the money and most people at the tables gave. And so I went to sleep that day and I, or that night. And I said, Hey, make sure that you tell me tomorrow. And so the next day they called me when I was getting on my flight, they said, Evie, you'll never believe this, but we raised $11,000. And I was like, okay, (laughs) $11,000 with almost 300 people. Like, okay, well, that's good. But I, I think that as 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 churches like we we shouldn't just say well we're pro-life because we're christians Mm -hmm. but really get involved and there's walk for life there's the baby bottles where you save your change um go to walmart and just get a pack of diapers and then take it to your local pregnancy center um places that you know maternity homes that help women in crisis pregnancies and i think that's really important we don't want to talk about these abortions um in church because it is such women are so embarrassed they don't want anyone to know it's tough yeah to do that that they've done that but i think if we create an environment where we say look there's no judgment here. We love you. We want to walk through through this with you. And how do you get that? How do you build that? Through relationship. Mm-hmm. You build trust through relationship. But the problem is the church is a business. Yeah. So we say, invite your friends. Come and here's the offering plate. Yeah. And here's ways that you can give online, okay? Um, oh, man, people are going to be so mad at me right now. But it's a business. <laughs> yeah. Right? There are things that are antithetical to relationship that we do, yeah. And and I think See, that. By the way, t- yeah, I think you'll get a kick out of this. T.D. Jake said one time, if uh, uh, if Jesus came to Earth, we'd have to explain almost everything about church to him. Oh, isn't that crazy? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, it is. And 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 so I think we've we've gone away from family, and um, we uh, I, I I'm looking for the Church of Acts. Mm-hmm. You know, where you get together, you gather together in your homes, where you eat together, where you share together, where you pray together, where you fast together. And then you sell to help the others that have need. Mm-hmm. Where Where is that Barnabas, church? Yeah. You know? And so, um, I don't know. I just, I think that um, maybe I, 2020 was my favorite year in my entire life. Oh, God. Okay. Oh, I know. No one says this. They say it was the worst. It was awful. I know we answered so many depression calls, child abuse calls, domestic violence calls. All that went up because people had loss of jobs, loss of income. They were all together all the time. Kids got on their nerves. Their wives got on their nerves, husbands, all this other stuff. But for me, when everything was shut down, I had to rest. Mm. And I learned to rest in him. And I learned that just because I'm busy doesn't mean I'm productive. Yeah. Um, And so when you had to stay home and you couldn't go out to restaurants and you couldn't go shopping, what else was there to do but to spend time and to ask the Lord, like, okay, I'm, I'm 45 years old. What is, where is the direction of my life going? You know what he says? He goes, have you ever once asked your neighbor to come over and sit at your table? Have you ever once asked that person that you met in the grocery store, bring them into your home, feed these people and then share the gospel. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I have a similar story too. Uh, 2020, and this is coming from somebody whose father passed away in 2020. Um, so I have a similar story in that the, and this is from the pastor perspective too, with what we just talked about, the machine of church runs in such a way that you put all these systems in place and then what pastoring becomes is feeding the systems and making sure the systems are running well. The problem is, is that like church, I don't think was ever supposed to be a machine. It's, it's a relationship. It's a body of believers. It's not a cog in a wheel. It's a, it's a, it's not even an institution. We know this, right? It's not just a building. It's not a building campaign for crying out loud. It's so much more than that. Um, but, but it was like, just like when the businesses shut down, even though church kept on going in terms of online church and that kind of stuff, it was almost like, it was like, all right, shut the machines off and everything just shut down. And then it was like, dude, I don't feel com. This is really this. I haven't said this to anybody except for my wife. I don't feel comfortable with what we're doing in church anymore. I just stopped and started thinking about it. And I still can't, I don't talk about this very often because I don't know if I was courageous or cowardly by doing what I did, but I felt like two things happened. I'm not sure the church is the church. And then the other thing was, I definitely know the church is not reaching the culture. Look at what in God's name is happening. Um, We got to do something. Um, And I'd always had kind of a heart of an evangelist, you know that. And then, but also two, the biggest calling I think that I have is one as a teacher. So that's what motivated me to kind of step aside from from full-time pastoring. And uh, and then I merged my church with another church and was very kind of hush-mouthed about kind of what God was doing because I didn't really know yet, but also, too, I didn't want um, there to be anybody that misinterpreted because I love God's church. I love, I love the institution of the church, but I just think we miss, we're missing some things along the way. Anyway, so I handed my church over and then started praying about what was next. Erica and I didn't really even know what would come next. Um, and then what rose out of that was, I, I call it a teaching ministry, but it's a media uh, platform, which is what we're doing now. So I couldn't agree more that I think all of this rolling back into kind of like the, the pro-life issue and that kind of stuff, I don't know that we're doing a, an effective job of discipleship, generally speaking, but I certainly know that we're probably not doing a good job of, of um, talking about these things because I think that we avoid them at all costs because we know the one thing that we can't afford to do is to be labeled as judgmental or run people off because we are fundamentalist Christians for God's name. Crying out loud, we can't, you know, can't be that. Um, so, so what what ends up happening a lot, and these are and these are friends of mine, uh, pastors. We end up just not talking about it. We we then move into the positive mental attitude gospel, which we know nobody will object to it to because everybody wants to be significant. Everybody wants to feel good about themselves, and so we've changed the gospel into that now. So God forbid that we ever actually have you know a real sermon uh, about abortion being murder or a real sermon about biblical sexuality um, and, and what the scripture has to say about this stuff. I also can't help but wonder, you know, maybe rolling back to the issue of um, how is it possible that there can be a pro-abortion Christian? Um, I can't help but wonder if that has something to do with the fact that um, more and more of that is starting to happen, is that we're just not we're just not talking about it. We're avoiding sticky situations in church on a Sunday morning at all costs because the main goal of church is growth, 
uh, as much as people may get mad at me for saying that, but um, I've been enough in these circles that the main goal for so many churches, for so many pastors on a Sunday morning is growth. And anything that's detrimental to that is anathema. It's funny because you said, you know, about Christians uh, saying that they're pro-abortion. Um, what I have heard is them say, we're not pro-abortion, we're pro-choice. We are pro for a woman choosing. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, and, and we're like, oh, I okay, specifically okay. use pro-abortion okay. on purpose. No, I know, but that, that's the thing. Like, we, we just kind of level it down a little bit. Well, I'm not for abortion. I'm just for a woman to choose. It's yes. like... Do you even understand what you're saying? <laughs> you know, it's like, are you that ignorant and that yeah. dumb that you're like, it doesn't make any sense. You're either for life or you're not. Yeah. You're, you know, it's, it's, it's just, but I think that's the problem is apathy. You know, we just kind of like, oh, let's kind of go with the flow and we, we want to make you feel good. Well, truth is truth. I don't yeah. know. And some people, yes. Um, I always say, okay, sure. But what are you reaching them with? Yeah. Because if you're selling out the message in the process of trying to import, by the way, Sanctity of human life is part of the message. Like, yeah. read the Old Testament. It's yeah. all over the place. I, I think I'm just really tired of um, of us breastfeeding um, yeah. Christians and just keeping them on that milk, you know? Um, and they're just saying, hey, you know, God loves you and accepts you the way you are, okay? But he loves you so much, he doesn't want you to keep you that way, yeah. you know? And so we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to offend any of these groups, so we don't speak truth. We just we just kind of go off the top and say, we're not really going to go further than the surface, um, but we're going to tell you what you like to hear so we don't ruffle any Well, feathers. I'm not a pastor anymore, so I don't care if I offend people yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the, the, the reality is the truth is offensive. The truth has never not been offensive because it always goes against the grain. The truth is something that should be difficult for you to do or else more people would do it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I say that callously and I don't mean it that way. Of course, I try to be careful with the way in which I do things and the demeanor um, and even uh, even what I say. Um, I always try to second guess myself if I can because I think that there's some healthiness in that. But just the mere fact that somebody gets offended doesn't mean that you have not been Christian. And I would double amen that for anybody listening today. Just because somebody got offended doesn't mean that you haven't done something unchristian. In fact, Jesus offended a lot of people. <laughs> I just don't want, I just wonder anymore for reading the scripture. Um, all right. So to jump off that soap, soapbox. Um, so you're, you're 19 at the time. You're, you go to a pregnancy resource center. And you decide to go ahead and keep your baby because of what they did there. So praise the Lord. Uh, the ends justify the means, even if you disagree with showing a woman that kind of video, uh, which I think you need to show people. You should know what you're doing. If you're going to shout your abortion, then you should know what you're shouting about. Mm -hmm. um, you decide to make a really difficult decision, not too difficult decisions. You decide you're going to keep the baby and you decide to do something else. I think this is so important because I don't hear people talking about this because to and maybe this is why maybe it's it's the the most logical answer and I don't hear people talking about it much but adoption so you decide to make a very difficult choice and you decide I'm not sure in my present state that it's wise for me to care for this child and you decide to place your brand new baby son up for adoption so I know this is a little bit of a, a soft uh, spot in your heart, but I think it's really important to talk about. So you just share as much as you would like to share um, about the decision, uh, what was going on in your head as you made that decision, and then what, what took place. Yeah. I wasn't really sure how to feel. Um, I had met a, a, a lady 
uh, on, I was singing with a choir at Lee, and so we had gone to Maryland, and she prayed for me, and so she really just took the reins and kind of became my mother, only because I didn't give my mother that chance to become my mother, um, because uh, I didn't want anyone to know that I was pregnant. So I hid my pregnancy from everybody. Uh, at this time, it was probably March or April, and then she was the one that that uh, brought up the the, abort, uh, the uh, adoption. And so I said, "There's no way I could do that. I could never like give my baby to somebody else." And she said, "You were contemplating abortion, yeah, you know." And so, so I mean, why wouldn't you consider this? And so, after thinking about it and hearing her heart on that. Um, she, you know, I decided, okay, you know, maybe that's something that I, I really need to consider. And so she gave me a name of a, a couple in Ohio that were looking to adopt a baby. And so they, she said, here's the, the phone number. And I know this pastor, I know their pastor, I don't know them, but if you feel like that's the route you want to go, then you'd call them. And so I waited a couple of days and then just said, well, what's it going to hurt just to meet them? Yep. So they came down and I spent time with them and um, really fell in love with them. Uh, they were in the perfect position to have a child. So they had their careers and they were established in their church. And so um, I just knew that they were settled, you know? And so I thought, wow, um, yeah, I think this is this is mm-hmm. the right thing for me to do. And so I went ahead when, when they came one weekend and told them I'm gonna choose you to, to have my son. I still, at that point, didn't understand uh, the consequences of that of that choice, yeah. and and here I say good consequences, bad consequences from it because it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life, yeah. and I suffered greatly. I suffered greatly um, because of the loss of my child, um, which that didn't pop up till years later, and it popped up in and and kind of had a connection with the police world, which if you'll remind me, I'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. But um, so I went through the process, and 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 as we got closer, about three weeks before I was going to have my son. I wrote my parents a letter and I told them, Hey, um, you know, I got pregnant in California and I'm, I'm going to have a baby here. I hope that you'll forgive me. Um, but I've planned to place him for adoption and found a family. Um, now the good thing was, was that, um, I was going to have the baby at the end of July when May came, everyone left from Lee and went home and I stayed there. My stomach then popped out. Nobody knew I was pregnant. I, I hid from everybody. And so, so then when July came and I had, my parents knew about it, um, they were very forgiving and loved me through that. And, but it was right in the middle of my mom moving my grandmother across the country to Virginia. So my mom sent my sister and, um, she was with me the whole time and being in the hospital and birthing the baby and having the parents come, um, it was uh, something else that night when the nurse came in and said, hey, we're going to take your baby from you tonight mm-hmm. and so you can get some rest. And you're a father, so you understand you know, how tired your wife was from yeah. going through that. And so um, I said, no. I said, I'm going to um, keep the baby with me. And so I prayed over him and I spoke over him and I declared over him and I asked him to forgive me. And I said, you won't understand this. And there might be a day in your life where you, you might not want to know who I am. You may be totally secure and say, this is my mom and this is my dad. And that's all I need to know. But, um, I just want you not to feel abandoned and rejected, you know, and I just wanted the opportunity to tell him, look, I didn't give you to somebody else. Um, because I didn't want you, I gave you to somebody else because I could not care for you at that time in my life. And, um, so that was my my fear that he would be re- he would feel rejected or abandoned. And so, uh, when 
five o'clock hit, the, the family was supposed to come at 5.30 the next day and pick him up on July 31st of 1996 um, at 5 p.m. I just, I, I experienced something. I had no, I had no idea what it was. Yeah. I was shaking. The tips of my fingers hurt. Uh, I felt like I couldn't breathe. Um, I had no idea what it was, but I knew that I hated the feeling. And so I prayed and I asked the Lord, I said, God, you've got to show up because I cannot do this. And um, within just a few minutes, I felt the peace of the Holy Spirit. That's just, it's really hard to explain, but it felt like as if somebody was pouring warm water on me Mm. and it just kind of came all the way out to my fingers, to my toes and just calmed me and just was a great presence, you know? And so uh, they wheeled me out and I put my son in the car seat and, and I watched as they drove off. And when I went home, um, and I hope this isn't too explicit, but my my breasts, you know, soon became full of milk and, and I didn't mm. have a baby there. And so my body was saying, you have a baby, but he wasn't there. Yeah. You know, I had the planner that said it's a boy on the table and and um, and every all the signs, but he was missing. And so that that was really difficult for me. Um, but I had a decision to make. And when I came to that crossroads, I was like, look, I can be sad about this decision or I can be joyful that somebody took my son and is raising him and loving him. Um, and so I had to make the decision to jump back into school and to continue focusing on Josh and and finishing and then going on to what what the next part of, of, of my life was going to be um, graduating from college. Um, so I went through that time. It was a difficult time, but I just put on this face and just kind of went with it. Yeah. No one never told anybody what I experienced. Um, fast forward a couple of years, uh, about the, maybe the 2012, 13, we had an officer die in the line of duty and, um, he was killed in a car wreck and it was, it really impacted me a lot. Um, I remember that night going to the scene, seeing the car and then having to get on the news and, and explain what happened and then go to the hospital where his body was and see his mom and dad and sister and wife and then um, see the other officers and experience that. Go home, sleep for two hours, get up, get in front of the media again and do that for the next four days, um, planning a funeral, planning a visitation. And it just really, it was really tough. And so... Um, the last day after the um, the the funeral, I remember going home and we had planned a trip to get to go to New York to get away from everything. And I remember staying in the in the shower and just crying. I mean, just sobbing, crying, you know. And um, and so a few months after that, um, I, I I I I felt that someone in my family was going to be killed, or someone was going to die, but it was only like my husband, it was my dad and Josh. It was men. That's it. And I, Brooklyn, you know, is my daughter. I mean, she's, I didn't birth her, but because of a blended, mar- a blended family, you know, I have her, but I never, she was never in, in that group. It was just those three. And so, um, I do death notifications mm-hmm. at work. And what that means is, is that when we have a death, I go to the house, knock on the door, open the door. I identify who I am. I asked to come inside the house and I tell the family, um, your husband was killed in a car wreck. Your daughter was shot, you know, whatever. And then I stay there with them. And so, so in combination with all that, I was in bed and I would wake up and it would always be at two or three in the morning where I would just wake up and have this fear that just gripped me like someone's going to die. So I would like check to see if my husband was sleeping. I would check on Josh. There was even one night where I dreamt that I, I that someone was at my front door 
And, um, and I imagined that it was a police officer coming to tell me that Josh was killed. Hmm. Just, it was weird. And I'm like, what? And it's always at two or three in the morning and I couldn't figure it out. You know why I would just be waking up like that awoken and, and feel that way. And so I called a, lo- a local church, and um, I knew that they offered counseling service, North Cleveland Church of God. Mm-hmm. And I said, can I have an appointment with Sharon Maloney? And so I went to her office, and I explained my story. And I told her about the adoption, and I told her about all this. And, and then I, I talked to her about the fear that I was having and why it would come and stuff. And so she said, um, Evie, when you placed your child for adoption, you went through what, – what I went through was a panic attack, which I've never had those. I, d- I don't deal with anxiety none of that stuff. And so when that happened to me, I, I, I didn't know what it was. Like when I couldn't breathe, right. I would hurt, but she explained to me it was a panic attack. And that's because your body was going through serious trauma. And like, I didn't know at that point, um, how to work through that. I had never been through that. And I, I, I thought, well, am I supposed to be sad? Am I supposed to be happy? Am I supposed to is this a joyous thing? Am I supposed to only talk good things about adoption? Do I talk about the real facts of hurting and being sad, you know? And if I do, will that deter people from choosing adoption, you know, and saying, well, I don't want to be sad, so I'm just going to, you know, have an abortion. Yeah. So I really struggled through all those things. And I struggled silently just because I had to put on this face of being strong, you know? And so, um, so she told me, she said, you, that's serious trauma, like, like a, a, a mother births that child and they put them on their chest and they hold them in that skin skin t- contact and the bonding and I never had any of that yeah. and so um so I never processed that so what happens is she talked about the amygdala and how that's the 911 center in our brain and that when something happens like loss like what I experienced with that officer dying that <clears throat> I immediately started worrying about the men in my life because of my male child that I had placed for adoption. I hadn't gone through any kind of trauma or counseling or anything. And so as she began to talk to me about this, she gave me scripture verses. And, um, and I am 100% convinced, obviously I know that fear does not come from the Lord. The enemy was, (coughs) is, is a hater of me Mm -hmm. and he lurks at night. And at two and three in the morning when I should be sleeping, he was tormenting me yeah. and waking me up and then just making me feel this fear. And, um, and so um, she gave me this list of scripture verses about fear. And she said, I want you to memorize these. And then when this happens, I want you to speak truth. I want you to speak this out. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's good. That's good. And so I put it right by my bed. And a week later, I woke up. And I got those scripture verses and I started reading those out and just within minutes peace. And then a month later it happened again and I was speaking out the scriptures and it got to the point where before I would just go to sleep, I would lay there and I would speak scripture and I would speak truth and I would speak truth to myself and remind myself who I am and what he's done for me and who God is. And, and I haven't experienced that in years. Mm -hmm. And, um, so one thing, you know, it, it is a traumatic experience placing a child for adoption. It's not an easy thing. And I, my son just turned 25 years old on July 30th. Um, he's a graduate of University of Miami. Um, I, I can pick up the phone right now and text him. I can talk to him. Mm. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. I know that mothers who place their children for adoption uh, don't always have that story. Um, but uh, I can be thankful that the Pregnancy Resource Center 
reached out to me, that they loved me, that they loved me through, and that they were confident enough to show me something that changed and saved the life of my son and saved my life. And so it is my objective until I die to share my story and without worrying about anybody, what they think of me or, you know, oh, she should have done this. She shouldn't have done that. Going back and forth. Um, my objective is to save as many babies as I possibly can. And, and through that, you're saving the life of the mother. Yeah. And while there will be difficult times, there's this man named Jesus that loves us so much that he comforts us, that he's with us, and that he will give us the strength to get through any situation. Well, that's so powerful. And I just want to say something, and I hope this doesn't come off as cliche or hackneyed, but I really do thank you for your bravery because I think sometimes with the advent of like safe spaces, and I don't know if you know what that is, but I I think we are trying to so many times trying to save people from traumatic experiences, but the reality is, is that God allows us to go through some of these experiences because there's some truth to whatever doesn't kill us can make us stronger. Not always. It can scar us. But with God on our side, the difficult things do make us better. That there, it, It's a reminder that this is not our home, but it also does, there is this purification process where we go through struggles and it, and it helps us to be stronger and better than we would be if we hadn't gone through those things. And I think you and I would both agree that the people who are most equipped to handle life are the people who have gone through some things and had to experience some things. Um, so I appreciate that story for that reason, that you were willing to go through something so, so very difficult for you that probably nobody will really even know what that felt like for you, except for people who have been in your same shoes. Um, certainly uh, your sons and, uh, and, and the parents that, that received your son or maybe even your loved ones or anybody that's close to you. Nobody's going to know that pain like you, but you were still willing to do it because you felt like your son's life was was valuable enough. And 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 I can't help but say thank you for that, but then also say I appreciate you sharing your story because I know it's difficult for you to share as well. But I, I just I find that that's so missing in, in the landscape of conversation on this issue is we say pro-life or uh, pro-abortion and – uh, we say keep your baby or kill your baby, but we don't say put your baby up for adoption. Um, and and I think that that is the answer to me when we talk about the rape and incest. Uh, when we when we give up those very few, by the way, uh, like together, perhaps one percent of abortions are actually rape and incest. Um, but that's the the most logical answer for me for that too. It's like you still don't kill the baby. It's not their fault. But what you can do is if you don't feel like you should have to take care of your rapist baby or you don't feel like you should have to be able to be reminded about the incest that took place um, that that produced this baby, then you can put this baby up for adoption. Um, and I just I find that we're that that's one of the things that's so lacking from the conversation today. And maybe it's because it's really is the answer for so many people. And it's uh it's too convenient to change your pro-abortion position if you if you start really thinking about adoption. How you start thinking about the fact that there are people out there who would love to have a baby, uh, love to take care of a child that uh, that you may not have the ability to do so, but they are in a place where they can take care of it. So, nonetheless, thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, I I, I want to talk about two last things. Just kind of the antidote some practical steps that we can take, especially for those of us who are pro-life. But I also would like to get kind of just quickly the aftermath of 
um, the story? Because I know you said you have a relationship with your your son now that is adopted. So give us a little bit of that, and then we'll talk about um, kind of what we can do practically beyond just the talking points um, about being pro-life to actually get involved. We talked about that a little bit. We'll dig into that a little bit more. But before we do that, so just share a little bit about um, the reconnecting story, the reunion story with you and your second son. Yeah, so on March um, 17th of twenty. 17, uh, my son reached out to my, my sister and said, you know, I'm interested in, in meeting the family. And so it was just literally 10 days later that he walked into, um, my house in Cleveland. And it was, it was a, a joyous experience, um, seeing him. Um, I think what I realized at that moment was that I was hugging somebody that I have loved my entire life, but he was hugging a stranger. Mm -hmm. And so there was a, there was a, um, and I can't speak for him because I mean, I, I saw the pictures and I actually had, um, a friend there to, to photograph, but, um, I, I didn't want to let him go, but I had to remember that it was probably a little uncomfortable for him because he's like, lady, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know you, you know, yeah. but, um, but without speaking for him, I just, I, it was just great. I was just so thankful to be able to spend that time with him and to, um, and, and since that time he's come to my house and spent the night and, and hung out with us, then, um, I can pick up the phone and call him or I can text him and he'll answer and check in. And, um, his life is busy right now. So we haven't got together, especially with COVID in the last, yeah. um, since, uh, 2019, um, but I think just my hope for him was that, and I understand the relationship between me and Joel is not like the relationship between me and Josh, mm-hmm. because Josh and I, you know, grew up, we grew up together. I know it's so weird to say that, but we did. And, um, well, I mean, you were 16. Yeah, I was young, you know, and, and there were a lot of bad, you know, bad things that I did, um, made bad choices with Josh, you know, and, and, um, I, I mean, I could go in and, and, and tell you the different things that I did, you know, just being immature as a, as a, as a child and as a, as a mother. Um, but you know, that's neither here nor there. That was in the past. But, but as far as my son's concerned, um, Joel, I, um, I don't have a relationship with him like that. And obviously he needs to have a relationship like that with his mother. And so, um, so being with him, um, it's, it's different because he's part of you. He's 50% part of you but you don't know anything about him, yep. you know? And, and so he had my book there and he was asking me questions about my book. And he, he said, let me see your hands. And he said, my hands are so small and our hands are exactly, you know, the same size and look, look exactly the same. And so, but it's like, you're, you know, it's a like complete stranger. He mm-hmm. talks different. Um, he loves Mexican food, but he doesn't speak Spanish. Um, and just, he's just completely different, you know, than, than basically how Josh and I grew up. But I love him. He's my son. And I think that for me, I think he felt good and that he met me. And that was maybe a portion of his life that he could maybe close that chapter and say, okay, that's that's done. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I'm grateful for that time. And I'm grateful that that, that reconnection has been made. Yeah. Um, I just think that people get in this odd sense that, oh, well, we're going to, they're going to start spending Christmas with us and all that. And it doesn't happen. Um, you just have to understand that that's his family and and um you know while he's still there and you still have contact with him um or the family you just have to understand that that's that's who he grew up with you know and so and that's part of loss you know with choosing adoption too so it's not it's not an easy choice 
Um, but it's definitely a better choice than abortion. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I love to hear you say that even after all that, uh, that, that is meant to you. Okay. So last thing is I wanted to, and I think this is super important because <laughs> we've talked about our own camp enough, but I'll just say Christians have the bad habit of like, if they want revival, they call a conference. Uh, they have people come in and guest speak. Yeah. And this is just like, this is probably society too. Like, uh, if we're going to start a movement, well, let's have a conference. Yeah. Um, how can we go beyond just saying that we are theoretically pro-life because we appreciate the life of, of the unborn and actually truly get involved with pregnancy resource centers or get involved with... Um, helping out the pro-life cause locally? What's some kind of just like baby steps that you would give somebody who is not involved yet? Yeah. Well, number one, I appreciate you asking that question because you're, you're, what you're doing is you're giving a call to action right now. Yeah. So we can sit here and talk as much as we want about, hey, what do we need to do? But unless we make our feet move, we're going to be, we'll, we'll be talking about this again in two more years saying, right. okay, what can Christians do? It's like, okay, this is what Christians can do. Um, you, if you don't have contact with an unwed mother, uh, somebody that you are helping uh, financially or however in whatever way you can possibly help somebody, then you look in the phone book or, or you can get on the internet and look for a pregnancy resource center in your area or the closest one. Mm-hmm. Um, they By the have, way, I will put down in the show notes and in the description of this, I will put down a link where people can help um, yeah. unwed mothers with children. Yes, thank you. Um, New Hope uh, Pregnancy Care Center in Cleveland, Tennessee is close. And then you have some here in, in Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. And so they have banquets, fundraising banquets, and a majority of their money that funds them comes from these banquets. So as Christians, I feel like these should be flooded. Mm-hmm. I feel like that the support that the church should support and, and even as a church, you know, calling and letting the, um, the directors or someone from representatives from the, the pregnancy centers, um, come to the church and speak about their mission and say, okay, okay, today's offering, uh, a portion of that is going toward the center to help. And I'll tell you why, because it allows the bills to be paid so that that center can be open for when an unwed mother comes in and says, is this the place where I can have an abortion? And you say, no, this is a pregnancy resource center. We're going to love you through this. Let's let, let's talk about this. Let's bring you in. Let's give you a cup of coffee. Let's, let's get some water. Let's sit down on the couch and, and we're going to teach you. And not only that, but they also have very um, realistic expectations for these women go through these centers and saying, Hey, um, if you take X amount of preg- uh, parenting classes, we're going to give you mommy bucks. And what does that mean? That means that volunteers have dropped off uh, baby clothes, bottles, um, pampers, all these different things in this closet. And you can take your money from going to your parenting classes and you can go and shop for your baby, mm-hmm. car seats, uh, blankets. So what do we do? Hey, we say, hey, we're going to have a baby drive. And we're going to, um, I want you to drop off uh, baby food or uh, formula or bottles or whatever babies need um, in order to survive. And we're going to give this to the local pregnancy center. I mean, you could do it as an individual saying, hey, I really want to have people come together and help. So I'm going to make a baby registry. And if you would like to give to this, ship all this stuff to my house and I'll be the one that takes it to the pregnancy center and drops it off. So I think a call to action is to make our feet move. Don't just say you're pro-life because you're a Christian, like show that, yeah. 
show it, do something. Love that. All right. I love all of that. That's so good. In fact, it kind of inspired me to do something that I think I want to do uh, in the future in terms of that baby registry. I love that idea of just pretending like you have a baby yeah. and then taking all that stuff that you get. And yeah. then um, maybe you could do that for like a birthday. You know how those people cool. do uh, the causes on Facebook, yeah. you know, give yeah. me this instead yeah. of a birthday present or whatever. Yeah. Um, that would be really cool to do. Yeah. So um, yeah. The, the, the other thing I would say, too, is um, your story is so robust. We don't have time to get into uh, so many more of the aspects of, like, your life as a gangbanger, um, your first pregnancy, and then uh, all of the different things that kind of associated with your whole story. So people can go still get your book. I know it's a couple years old now, but it's still a great story. My wife is in the book because yeah. you actually went to high school with my wife yeah. all the way in California. Uh, and then you guys ended up just miraculously here in Tennessee. So um, there's just some really, really great, awesome stories. So name of the book is Revolving Choices. Where can they find the book? Well, um, I don't have any more copies. Okay. And this is why, because you're right, it is old. And uh, I think I was really uh, saddened to go to, um, uh, what's that place called where you find books? Barnes and Nobles? No, no. Amazon. No, the one here in chat, McKay's. Oh, God. And they had my book for sale for five cents. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, that really did happen, but I wasn't sad. I just thought, well, hey, if somebody can pay five cents to read this good. But I've, I've really felt a push uh -huh. that I'm to write a second book. Awesome. So I have started writing, but I've come to a halt. Okay. And I haven't picked, I haven't gotten back into that I, because I'm like, I don't know what else to write. I've written a lot. Um, so I have probably have enough for a bookmark right now, but I really <laughs> feel like I'm supposed to write a second book. Okay. I think I need some direction. Cool. And so that's where I'm at right now. So I haven't, I don't have any more books. And I thought, well, I'm not going to order anymore because I'm going to get this book done and I'm going to send it to a publisher and just see what the Lord does with it. I think when I wrote the first book, I was really small minded. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I just want this to go for teens um, between 13 and 18 who are like facing crisis pregnancies. But the Lord's like, man, there's men and there's women that need to read this book from Absolutely. this age to this age. And what it really focuses in on is going through traumatic experiences and not getting the healing that we need and then suffering the consequences for it. Whether you're, you've been raped physically abused, mentally abused. Um, the enemy wants to keep us bound. And I use it a lot in, in, in um, physically, when you put handcuffs on somebody, you can't get out of those handcuffs until you have the key. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, when we go through bad things in life, whether we choose them ourselves, which is both the, both pregnancies, I, ch I chose that route, the, the gang um, involvement, I chose all the routes. So everything that I suffered now, and or maybe still suffering from came from my choices but unfortunately not everybody has you know has that same story and yeah. so things were done to them that they're like well how if there really is a god then why did i get molested why did my uncle rape me why did this happen yeah. and so being a police officer and going out and talking to a woman who's selling her body for 30 dollars mm -hmm. um sitting there and and loving this woman and talking to this woman and saying hey why are why are you doing this and she says, because my father raped me from the age of seven to 14. And the only value that I, I see myself is giving sex mm -hmm. to men. That's, that's the only value that I have. So I've realized that, that we all suffer through our lives, through things that happen. And it, it, it halts our progression um, to fulfill the, the obligation and the commitment and the assignment that God has given to us um, as human beings and as his creation. Yeah. And until we address those issues 
and get healed from those issues, we cannot fully complete the assignment that he has destined us for. Yeah. But you don't know it unless you know him. You know, you don't know it unless you understand that you're you're halted in that place. And so I've started writing on that and talking about that. And I'm just, I'm at a halt. Okay. So, um, so I mean, I can order more books, but um, I, I feel like they're outdated and I feel like I have so much more to say. Well, we'll just do, yeah, that's fantastic. We'll just do this. I know how that goes because I'm in the process of trying to write my first yeah. book. Um, so, uh, well, then make me two promises when yeah. you finally get this thing done that uh, you'll come back on and then we can yeah. promote the book. Yeah, and then yeah. also, too, that... Um, that it won't be in like 16 years because it's a long time to write a book. I know, I know. Uh, and I know how that goes. But uh, but yeah, so uh, I look forward to you being back on with thank that you. book being completed so that we can put that into the hands yeah, of people. And good. thank you so much for your story. Thank and you, Reed. It. Thank you. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>